0: Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor an upstart entrepreneur or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Jay Wurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My guest today is Dupree Scoville. Dupree is the managing partner and chief investment officer of Woodbine, a fully integrated real estate investment and development firm and one of the leading hospitality owners in the country, having completed over $3.6 billion in hotel investments and developed over 11,000 keys across branded and independent projects. Woodbine's history, rooted in relationships, has allowed the company to partner with mega family offices and institutional partners across asset classes. Dupree has found a way to carve a new path for the firm while honoring Woodbine's legacy, reputation, and track record. Dupree and I have been close YPO friends for years, and his insights on real estate investing, development, and partnerships are fascinating to hear. Please enjoy my conversation today with Dupree Scoville. Hey, buddy. I'm excited to see you. We're in YPO together. I've known you for seven years. I'm very excited for this conversation. I think you're one of my closest friends in the business and someone that I admire. So this is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Feelings mutual. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: And you're also the most Texas guy I know. (laughs) And one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is how your history just screams of Legacy, family, fantastic projects, great Texas accent, big-time Texas money. And one of the things that I find so interesting is how much history is a part of your company. And I suspect such an essential part of the future. So why don't we let that be a lead-in to giving the listeners a little bit about your company's history and how you got started at Woodbine and maybe a little bit about what the new Woodbine looks like.
1: Oh, sure. So I'm going to be brief and then you just kind of dive in where you think I should go deeper. But Woodbine was started by my father 50 years ago, this year, actually 50 years ago. And it was a partnership with the Hunt family. And ironically, Ray Hunt, whose father at the time, I believe, was the wealthiest man in the world because he made an old discovery in East Texas. That was called the Daisy Bradford, I think, number three or something like that. And that oil rig became uh, the source of the family's wealth. Well, eventually, Mr. Hunt acquired land, just like you and I would acquire stocks and bonds. He was acquiring land all over North Texas. He has to take over the company for his father, who dies unexpectedly. And now he comes to my father and says, Hey, I want you to run my development company. My, my dad was an auditor with Ar- Arthur Anderson. And so He audited Trammell Crow. He audited Lincoln, but he was by no means a real estate guy. But the way Ray describes it is he says, look, I'm I'm a jockey better. I'm not betting on the horse and I want you to come run this company. And so my dad agrees, reluctantly agrees, actually. But he has a few stipulations and he says, look, I'll do it. But here's the thing. I want to be able to pick the mascot. I want to be able to pick the fight song. I want to be able to pick the colors of the team. Uh, effectively saying, look, if you're going to empower me to do this, I need to be able to be in control. And that was something that the Hunt family has honored since then until today. And it's just a really special relationship because their family is so rich in history. And and Mr. Hunt, Ray Hunt, was so honoring in the way that that he would talk about and honor his father. And so in many ways, it's kind of part of our DNA to do that. And so Woodbine for years was really an, an athlete of a developer. We would develop anything that made sense on the land holdings that the Hunt family acquired uh, or held. Eventually, early 90s, the company shifted and we began to focus on hospitality, in large part because my dad just saw a gap. He said, look, there's, there's no destination resorts in the Southwest. There's none in Texas. Is this a niche that we ought to be playing in? And In large part, he was saying, because of our capital structure, you've got a family office who's willing to invest a great deal of money. A great deal of capital and really see very little return for that over many years and take a lot of risk in order to get ideally a much bigger return. That was really the competitive advantage that my dad saw with that type of capital. And so they began to develop resorts and developed, I think, six from 1992 to 2006 between Texas and Arizona. Those resorts became kind of the Woodbine's calling card in many ways. So now when my brother and I get involved, many years later, 2008, nine, and 10. Our focus was naturally on hospitality because that's what we had we had really grown up seeing. But our objective there when we came in was, to look, this model is going to be really tough to make work over time because you have to put out two, 300 million. You have to buy land, two, four, 500 acres. You're sitting on that for who knows how long while you're entitling it. I mean, it's a very challenging business plan. And by the way, once you've developed four or five within the markets I described, you, you know you're not far from saturation. And so we really felt like the best way to look at Woodbine going forward was to diversify within the hotel business. And so, in that sense, we said we're going to start doing select service. We're going to start doing urban full service. We're not just going to be a developer. We're going to acquire assets as well. And that really has been the basis of our business over the last ten years. And of course, like any good crisis, right, you have to look at that and say, well, what what is that going to do to make you better?" How's that going to change the way you operate? And as we went through the pandemic, of course, it forces us to think: look, we've got to get to the point where we're not just exclusively relying on the hotel business to be our livelihood. Even though we are diversified across geography, even though we are diversified across capital partners, across lenders, across brands, that's still not enough when you when you see a truly global pandemic <laughs> affect the industry. So that's where we started saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna push our attention towards some of the other asset classes like office like industrial and like multifamily. So in four minutes or less, there's the there's the past, the present, and the future.
0: This is going to be good. There is so much <laughs> to talk about there. So let's start first with the fact that Mr. Hunt just bet on your dad with presumably no real estate experience, or was it a little bit of real estate experience? And then the other side of that coin is were they buying all this land for oil, or were they buying it for an investment where they had the foresight that they thought that they could develop?
1: None. To answer the first question, in terms of real estate experience, none. I hadn't even bought a house yet. So from that perspective, it truly was, I'm betting on the character of this man. I'm betting on his, his wherewithal that I've witnessed. And really, they were involved in some civic things in Dallas, and that was it. And, uh, and Ray, in fact, the first time he talks about the first time that he remembers hearing the name John Scoville, he was listening to the radio <laughs> in 1966 when my dad was quarterbacking the Texas Tech Red Raiders against the Texas Longhorns. And in an unprecedented upset, Texas Tech beats Texas for the first time ever. And now my dad becomes like goes down in Texas tech history as this legendary quarterback, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> funny. But Ray remembers pulling over to the side of the road, listening to that game about this quarterback who just runs for 165 yards and on, against the Texas Longhorns in Austin and wins. And so it was kind of a crazy, uh, the way their relationship actually started. They didn't even know each other before that happened, but long story short, again, when he gets to know my dad and look, bet by the way is, is a two way bet. John, my dad, was betting as much on Ray Hunt as Ray Hunt was betting on him. Obviously, that's a different dynamic when you're betting on the capital partner. But you know as well as I do that the capital source, particularly institutional capital sources, can change their mind in any given moment and decide, you know, we're out of hotels. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to be out of real estate. So for my dad to look at that and say, "Hey, I'm betting on Ray Hunt and I'm betting on the business that, and I'm betting on the investment he's going to make in me that this is going to be a sustainable long-term relationship. And that's a testimony for us that I think we preach a lot is relationships are obviously the bedrock of anything we do in real estate. But people say that and rarely can they actually give a a firsthand testimony. And so what we say is look at a 50 year partnership with the hunt family, and then we can say now, that's a believable fact when when we say relationships, are the most important thing about our business. And so it's fun that, that that relationship has now gone from one generation to a second generation. And now within the hunts, there's actually a third generation that's emerging, which will be fun because we've been able to bridge that gap. And I think continue that that uh, partnership even for years to
0: come. So have you diversified that capital or is all your capital that you're investing now still coming from the hunts?
1: That's a great point that a great question. From our perspective, what we we saw, my brother and I, when we joined the business, the concern that we had was, okay, the Hunt family is obviously immensely successful in the oil and gas business and in real estate and 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 it's kind of whatever Ray touches. It doesn't seem to miss very much. But there was a concern on our side is if we are completely relying on one capital partner and we're captive to that individual that we are subject to change particularly when you get into multiple generations and and that was something that we were concerned with and by the way to the hunt's credit when we approached them with this our concern was hey look our mission for many years has been to provide wealth to create wealth for future generations of the hunt family it was almost like this a service mentality of our family being feeling that it was a privilege to carry on their legacy and improve right what that family was intending to do now of course our family benefited in, in, in the interim Obviously, but from our perspective, we were looking at going, hey we should probably start thinking about ways to diversify our capital base and so to make a long story really short, when I approached uh, Chris Kleiner, who really manages the the real estate side of the hunt family among among many other things, he said he kind of said to me, hey, you you don't need to think about the hunt family. you need to think about the Scoville family. you need to think about that legacy and where you what you need to build there and how can we help you do that?" And so from our perspective, that's how we ch- we shifted. We then said, okay, let, let's figure out a way to where the Scoville family owns the business outright. They can be investors with us. And so that really started a whole new chapter of our company where we now started raising capital from other institutions and from other family offices and from other foundations. And that structure really varies across asset types, which I'm happy to talk about if we want to get overly technical, but that's how that has evolved where now our family owns it outright. And the Hunts have continued to partner with us in just about every deal that we've done.
0: Wow. I don't think you can find many partnerships that exist in real estate like that today for so long. Is that something that was maybe a moment in time, both on the development side and on the approach from Mr. Hunt on the capital
1: side? Or do you think that still goes on today? You know, I do think it happens today. I think it, what I would say, less of a moment in time and more an alignment of values. And the alignment of values to us is the critical component of any capital relationship. And we've seen that on the banking side and we've seen that on the equity side. It's the extent that there is an ability for relationships to align around something outside of the business deal. It ends up creating these much more sustainable and and I think repeatable transactions and partnerships that end up building on themselves to where you keep going. And in our view, it's like, look, any deal we do, Even if there weren't a mandate, which now in this case, there isn't, there's still our objective to say, we're going to go to the hunts first. We want them to see those opportunities. And so, and that's as much about just good old fashioned loyalty.
0: It's really phenomenal. And one of the things that I struggle with in evaluating partners, whether they're institutional or families or high net worths is how repeatable is this going to be? How loyal is this capital going to be? If you're dealing with an institution, is that guy going to retire in five years and then their whole strategy is going to change and they're not doing hospitality, they're not doing industrial anymore. And then you're kind of blown out of the water. Were the hunts focused on hospitality or did your dad really say, hey, there's a big hole here and we need to fill it and you guys have unlimited capital. So let's go do it.
1: Yeah, you know, there's two great stories around one project that I'll quickly summarize. One is Reunion Tower in downtown Dallas or Hyatt Dallas, which is, for those who haven't seen it, that's the tower with the ball that that is often on every Cowboy game you watch or any of those types of things. My dad's grandkids, who they call him Babu, they always say that's Babu's Towers with the way they refer to it. But I'll give you kind of a a quick history on that in, in two different ways. When Mr. Hunt acquired that land, there was the, he was the second person on that chain of title from the founders of Dallas <laughs> to him. Unreal. Right? And so his vision on that was really a long-term vision. And Node Hotel had been developed in Dallas for maybe, I don't know, a decade or more. And my dad and Mr. Hunt come along and they... Now, this track, by the way, straddled a railroad. It was partially on public land. So... There was a public-private partnership before those even existed between all these entities that they had to negotiate to be able to develop what was then probably an 850-room hotel. And now it's, I think, 1,100 keys. But this convention center hotel became the heartbeat of downtown Dallas and really brought the convention business here in many ways. And so that, what they often call an accidental icon, was something that really put that partnership on the map. So now fast forwarding to your question. Number one, it was not necessarily that hospitality was the objective. The objective was really, hey, this is the right piece of land to develop first. Let's determine the highest and best use for that site. And then let's go forward from there. And they would tell you, look, if we were younger, if we were smarter, if we were wiser, we wouldn't have done it because that may not have been (laughs) the right move. Now, it turns out it's been an unbelievable investment for the family for now decades. And it is, it's an institution in Dallas in many ways. Now, fast forward 30 or 40 years from that point, I'm having a conversation with, with Mr. Hunt. And at the time, Woodbine was engaged to do some master planning work on that site. And master planning work was kind of probably even over an overstatement. It was really more, we were meeting about some of the outcomes that could possibly happen on that site. And I remember having this conversation with Mr. Hunt, which is not like I would approach him with a lot of these things very often, but somehow we find ourselves in a side conversation. And I'm kind of just curious and I'm kind of going, hey, why not go ahead and engage master plan groups? And let's actually figure out how to put this land into production, because this was the largest urban land holding I want to say, in any metro area, or at least in the top five metro areas for sure. And so and Mr. Hunt kind of looks at me as he always is, courteous and kind and gentle and, and humble as he is. He kind of looks at me, and if he were you know had sharper elbows, he probably would have patted me on the head and said, Listen, little fellow, let (laughs) let me teach you a thing or two. Instead, he says, Look, I get it, but you gotta understand you think long term is 10 or 20 years. I think long term is generation, second, three, or even fourth down the road. And it really put things in perspective to me. So for me. And so I think from that point of view now. It really did change the way that I think about the business. So that's that's the issue is most capital partners don't really have the ability to think two or three or four generations down the road. That's what makes, I think, the Hunt family so unique. And it's really taught us a lot in the process to say, look, as a developer, maybe chasing a promote is not necessarily the first priority. Maybe it really is about building an enduring business, an enduring company with great people which it turns out that's that's what our mission is that's how we think about the world and so th- that's kind of how circling around that relationship how it's affected two very ends of the spectrum to my dad all the way to me and clearly
0: you figured out how to make money on a shorter time horizon for your business and work the promotes in in such a way how do you go about doing that when you have a partner thinking three or four generations down the road
1: well it's really just about it's as much about trying to figure out Just what we were talking about earlier on diversification. We want to be able to diversify our equity partners. We want to diversify our lenders. We want to diversify geographically. We want to diversify within the industry. We want to diversify within product type. And so from that perspective, it really is a balance. And I think we go, we ebb and flow, right? So USAA has been a big partner of ours for for over 40 years. I mean, I would argue, I bet we've done nearly a billion dollars of development just with them. And now they're spotty hotel investors. They've got just unbelievably talented leadership that says, okay, we're going to pick this time to invest in hotels. And it just so happens that Woodbine is still standing every time that happens. Or good timing it's worked out okay. And so in that scenario, you've got an institutional partner where we're very clearly aligned. We are developing an asset in order to create value in a shorter term period. And so let's figure out exactly how to do that. And so that is really the alignment of interest that becomes so critical. So oftentimes now we really look at a project like the Driscoll, which we had just acquired in Austin last year. Great historic hotel, been around since 1886. Our partner, a guy named Eddie Margain, he has a great mentality on it. He says, well, look, we're not really owners. We're stewards because an asset that's been around for more than 100 years, you're you're not really owning it. You're just kind of borrowing it for a period of time, which I think is a great perspective. On that kind of asset, that's where you think about, hey, that needs to be a long-term investment. Whereas the Hyatt Dallas at the airport, DFW Airport here in in Dallas, that's one where we've got a partner who says, look, our objective is to be in and out in five to six years. And for us, it's a great opportunity to say hey, we can still take the stewardship mentality. We can invest. We can turn that around the way we want to see it. We can We can look at the aesthetic modifications that we think will improve that asset and put ourselves in a position where then – we can sell the asset in a shorter period of time and benefit from a promote. So it really is thinking about that. Going okay, you can't do all Driscoll projects because you got to keep the lights on. And so it really is trying to be thoughtful about a curated mix of assets that give us the ability to both benefit short term and then have a longer term view. I think the difference between maybe Woodbine and others is most of the time you either are one or the other. You're really a rare exception where you're thinking I'm just going to create a platform that I'm own forever or you're literally, you're on a treadmill every single day and you're buying and selling and flipping and building. And it it's a hard road, right? It feels like you're starting over every single time.
0: Well, it seems like the foundation of your company didn't have a specific asset class that your dad was an expert in that he was doing. It was a pretty much a blank canvas. And that clearly has proven out well because only A few folks that I know can count a track record like yours with the type of partnerships that you've had. And I'm really interested to know what you think and what you find important about how you conduct yourself, how you negotiate a deal that's put you in the position to get some of these great partnerships.
1: So we have kind of three, we call them three T's in our world. Teamwork, track record, and trust. Th- those are three things that we kind of, we live by. We almost say if you had a marketing strategy, someone might say it's this big colorful document with all these things and all that kind of stuff. Ours is just those three words. That's what we market is number one, you know, teamwork. We are, a, I think, a collection of really talented individuals, usually very loyal, very tenured individuals in our case. Average tenure, I think at Woodbine, is around 17 years. And so First, it is we've got a good team right? that wants to stay together, that wants to work on interesting projects. The second one is track record. Like I'm not bashful about it. I think we've done okay, my brother and I, over the years that we've been empowered to lead this company. We we make no apologies for the fact that we are leveraging the reputation, we are leveraging the track record that my dad and his team create, which has created a reputation and a standard that we feel obligated to follow. And the third one is trust, and probably the most important one. But I think especially when you go through a moment in time like the pandemic, for those two years, people kind of see what you're made of. I mean, we made a lot of investments in 17, 18, 19. That's not a great time to then have a vintage year that you're measuring against. But I think the investors that we had during that period of time and that are in our funds that have been operating since then, I think they would say, Man, I don't know if there's anybody else that's going to get in that trench like Woodbine did and fight for every nickel and dime to be able to say, what do we have to do to make sure we don't have to do a capital call? And by the way, that's the same with our equity partners and that's the same with our lenders. Our lenders needed to know, hey, that group is going to scratch and claw and fight and do whatever they have to do to make sure that these assets continue to do what they need to do so they can turn around as fast as they possibly can when the when the market turns. And I think that has proven out. Even though those returns, by the way, when you start to do it at the end of the day, it's like, well, you may not have delivered the IRR that is consistent with our history, but you did build trust in the meantime. And that at the end of the day may be even more important because now the hope is those investors go, you know what, I'll invest with those guys any day because I know how they handled themselves in that situation.
0: It's easy to turn back the keys, but in so many instances, there's probably a lot of things groups could have done to avoid that. And it's clear... That that's built into the DNA of Woodbine, and I would love to know how you got into the business, because you were seeing this from the outside as a little kid growing up, going to these cool resorts, watching this stuff get built. How did you find your way into the company?:
1: Well, the, you know, unlike a lot of family businesses, ours was never considered a family business. My brother nor I were ever intending to join Woodbine. And I think that's, I give my dad credit for that, by the way, for never even setting the expectation that that was an option. So in fact, one time I asked him is I just, I think I was in front of someone else and I'm standing there with my dad. And I think I graduated college. And somebody said like, "Why? why don't you hire your sons? Why aren't they working for Woodbine? And my dad basically said, well, why would I hire them? They don't know ish anyway. And so no, you can curse. Let's go. Already so I'm kind of going, okay, but, you know, you could have said it with me not standing there, but the truth was, he's exactly right. He's like, why would I train you? Now you're going to come to Woodbine. You're going to know everything Woodbine knows. You're not going to know anything, what anybody else does. And so when I went to go work for Trammell Crow, it was an amazing training ground. And of course my dad is probably looking at it going, well, that's exactly why you couldn't come here first. And eventually, actually, it was the CFO that was working for Woodbine at the time, an unbelievable guy, and a guy named Greg Mowat, who shaped our company in more ways than I can even count. But Greg said, hey, would you ever come to work for Woodbine? And I was like, well, I think he actually said, would you ever come work for your dad? I said, no, I don't think I'd I'd work for my dad. Now, that was not because I don't love my dad or get along with him. It just hadn't really entered my mind. But I did say, I said, but I would work for you because I did like the way that he operated. And I thought it would be a really interesting potential path. He kind of chuckled. and He said, well, here's kind of what I'm thinking. And he starts to lay out this vision for me coming to Woodbine. And after I graduated from grad school, I really kind of looked at it and said, look, for what I want to do entrepreneurially, I really have two options. I can either carve my own niche and literally try to do it on my own, or I can leverage the platform that Woodbine has and try and execute it within Woodbine. And fortunately, there are a handful of people. We all have our board of directors in a way who said, look, you'd be crazy not to take that option and build what you want to build within Woodbine. And that was really this capital platform, this acquisition platform, the fund platform. And so that's what ended up motivating me to come over. And we've kind of been running ever since. And what's the hardest thing about stepping into that role with your dad
0: at the top and the CEO coming into in as a second generation? What was hard about that and what challenges do you still encounter?
1: Well, change is tough for especially, I mean, the, the hardest part was bridging the, the kind of older generation that was at Woodbine and trying to revamp and grow the team, right? which I know you know a lot about. And so for me, that was the hardest part because those leaders who had been undyingly loyal to my dad are now saying, now, who is this kid? With No exaggeration. Who's this kid coming in here with all these ideas of what Woodbine needs to do and how it can change and what it needs to look like? But my dad was really setting the tone for them, not because he wanted us to be to step in as, as the leaders of the company. We needed to earn our way to get there. And that was what he always appreciated about us is my brother and I would be the first ones to get here. We'd be the last ones to leave. And so work ethic was never a question. It was never a silver spoon type of idea. It was really more about do they have the chops? Do they Can they earn the respect of everyone else on the team to be able to to actually execute in that leadership role. And so that transfer of trust was really difficult over time for people to say, okay, this is the way Woodbine has always done it. And when you're a company like Woodbine, where you're steep in tradition, you're steep in ritual, then when you come to these types of crossroads where somebody says, well, this is the way we've always done it. But my dad, I'll never forget it because his view on this was just because it's the way we've always done it. Does not mean it's the way we need to do it going forward. And when you have a founder who is saying that, that is dramatically different than me trying to convince everyone, no, this is the way we need to go. That that to me was kind of the game changer for my dad to be able to represent that to the team and then give everyone license to say, okay, we're going to try some different things.
0: Yeah. What an incredible, humble and gracious way to be because the founder doesn't give you the respect, doesn't give you the ear, doesn't want to lose control, then you're not gonna go anywhere. And the way we've always done things is gonna be the way that you continue to do things. So in a lot of ways, the way that your dad acted definitely contributed to your success, it seems.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, his his leadership is, and his fingerprints on the business are undeniable. Um, I mean, all the way through. In fact, there's a kind of interesting story. We were going through a branding exercise, if you will, to try and kind of reestablish what were our values. Because again, we were founded almost as a Hunt company, as a wholly owned subsidiary of the Hunt family. And so by default, we kind of adopted a lot of their cultural things, their mission, their vision, their values, which it's not that the values weren't consistent. In fact, they, they were consistent. They just weren't woodbine. They weren't born and bred by us. And so when we started to evaluate that, and there were probably eight or nine values that they, that there may be even more, maybe 10, that were kind of the buzzwords that you might be used to. We were kind of going through the soul-searching process and trying to identify who are we, who do we want to be when we grow up, and what are the enduring things that we want to challenge our own team to be able to own. And so there was a gal that used to work for us. Her name was Cammie Hardy. She ran marketing for us for many years. She was a visionary in, in many ways, but what she did one day, just we were making this video tribute to my dad. This was actually five years ago which was really just trying to capture some of the memories of the company for 45 years. And she sent me an email. She said, I thought you might find this interesting. And it was my dad's strength finder test. I'm sure, I mean, you know, a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with that. But on this strength finder test, when I open up that email and I'm reading what these five results were, there may have been four, I can't quite remember, but, but it was, I looked at it and I was like, those are our values. That is <laughs> no, which is almost like, how could you not recognize that the values that of who he is is who Woodbine is, but it was kind of an aha moment. And so for us, that's where we came up with this acronym that we call reach and reach is the R is relationships. The E is effort. The A is accountability. The C is conviction, just believing in a value, a set of values that are unchanging and the H is humility. And so circling back to your question or your comment. The H, I would argue at times, is probably the most important one. And that's what my dad has modeled for Woodbine. That's what he modeled for us in the transition. That's where giving us enough rope to be able to hurt ourselves was really key in that transition. And I think it gave people the license to say, okay, we're going to try new things. We're going to explore what the next step or generation might look like. And so that's been an important part of how we've evolved. And what was the
0: biggest challenge you had to overcome in part of that transition?
1: Number one, it was, as I mentioned, the personnel side, right? gaining the trust from the old guard. But I think secondly, right, is the fear, the fear of what yeah, the imposter syndrome. Well, what what am I doing here? Like I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not sure I know what I'm doing in real estate. I don't know what, you know, all those things. And I think for me, that's a daily battle. That's not like something that that went away. But now that we are exploring all these new ways to capitalize businesses, now that we're doing sometimes six, seven, eight projects in a year, whereas our history was always doing one project. It was kind of, it was really all for one and one for all. It was kind of like this, this, whatever that is, three musketeers. But now we're really, there's a saying within the Texas Rangers that says one riot, one ranger. That's the way we are now. It's like, you got a lot of people going a lot of different directions that are trying to solve a lot of problems. And so those, that becomes really challenging on an organization that has really been focused Historically, on everyone devoted to one project. Now you've got to put in all the systems, the accountability, the different things like, like that that structurally allow you to be able to run in all those different directions and do that well. So, final thing on
0: this section, I think it would be interesting to know a lot of the listeners have probably read these Trammell Crow letters. I don't, you've seen yeah, them sure. from oh, the yeah. 80s, right? Yeah. What did you learn from Trammell Crow that you kind of live or die by today at Woodbine?
1: Well, so I loved working at Triangle Crow, and I loved, and and those letters, by the way, were passed around when I got there, which was, there was kind of a tech bubble that happened just before I joined and was kind of working its way out, which is actually, ironically, mostly in North Texas. It was kind of this dot-com-ish thing. Didn't know that. Yeah, which was a big part of what was going on here. And then years later, of course, 2008, about the time where I was about to go to grad school, those letters get circulated again. So I had a chance to really kind of look through them, which a lot of the names that are actually still with the business <laughs> are still there, which is kind of amazing. But I, I would say this, less of what, and trying to be trying to thread the needle and not be overly critical. I think what I learned at Trammell Crow was probably more about why Woodbine was where where I was supposed to be. Because when I was at Trammell Crow, and rightly so, you have, met it, uh, it's a public company, it's got that ethos. It, w- it went public while I was there and that, but we were gearing up for that for many years before that. And the ethos is, look, the last dollar out is important. And that means sometimes quality might be a something you sacrifice if you cannot justify to the penny or buy the Excel spreadsheet, why that is important, then you do not do it. So, and that always rubbed me the wrong way. And honestly, I could not figure out why. I was like, why do I care if we're using fake stone instead of real stone? Why do I care if we're going to have if we're going to do this certain project and and maybe cheap out on or go a little less expensive, I should say, on this type of exterior facade instead of something else? Well, then I got to Woodbine and and that was never the case. It was always saying, how do you make a great project? How do you make a place where someone wants to be, whether that's a Hyatt Place or whether that is a luxury resort in Scottsdale, Mountain Shadows that we did. The objective was the same. And it was saying, sometimes you can't pencil why you ought to do a bigger pool. Sometimes you can't pencil why, why you need to be a higher quality level of service. Or those types of things and that was when i got here i was like oh my gosh it all makes sense now that's where that tension came from i've grown up around this mentality that says hey sometimes you just have to make an investment in the asset because it's the right thing to do or because it is the quality that your customer is going to expect and it's going to create a project that will last for 30 or 40 years longer than maybe another project would and that's what kind of started to change the way that i think about the hotel business so now i had this kind of example at crow That was very different. And it really confirmed when I got to Woodbine, I was like, okay, now this makes sense. This is where I'm supposed to be. So
0: how do you make deals pencil and how do you get the most bang for the buck at Woodbine? Cause I'm right with you. I was in a meeting today. We were having a project management meeting and one of our project managers toured an asset manager from one of our partners around a hotel. And they were like, you know, you could probably cut this out and you could probably cut that out. And I just said to our project manager, this doesn't matter. This is a $5 million renovation. This guy's talking about $20,000 things. It's not going to matter. It's just going to cheapen the guest experience. And then we're going to have to redo it two years from now. So how do you, though, in your company, find the ability to create these unbelievable projects? Okay, Hotel Emma, Mountain Shadows, but still have them come into a budget that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think there's a balance internally, which is helpful. My brother is very thoughtful about on the construction side of business, on budgets, on those types of things. And oftentimes I'll just say, hey, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's you know, I'll kind of keep dreaming. Like, let's just keep going. Like, if you guys are going to let me dream, I'll just keep saying things we should do. And so I think there's actually a good balance between us because my brother can kind of thread the needle and find the places where it's like, hey, this is important to do. Th- that's probably the right way we should be thinking. But there comes a point in time, right, where <laughs> if it's not going to create any return, at all, ever, right? You have to be thoughtful about that. And and so we've just found a balance in that regard. A lot of it's lessons learned too over many years to say what are the things that are, are really impactful from a guest perspective? And what are some of the things that a, a non-hotel developer <laughs> won't necessarily see as creating an inauthentic experience? And so I think that is there's always that great tension. And that helps when you have third-party investors because obviously we don't have an endless checkbook. We've got to live and die by the budget we set. And we set that underwriting early on. We try to give ourselves as much room as possible. We, generally, we try to solve to a slightly lower IRR to give ourselves some room to be able to outperform. But then that continues to be and always will be, I think, the biggest challenge is, is how do you execute on these big visions? A lot of times that's just really creative you know, design work, right? That's thinking about things a totally different way. So I don't know that I have a great answer for it, to be honest with you. That That really is the tension that I think we operate within every day on all of our projects.
0: And are there some pillars that you won't move against that just have to be this certain way that you would be known for in some of your hospitality projects?
1: Hmm. You know, that's a good question. I think less so like a brand, right? I mean, like like maybe an operator would think or those types of things. I think for us, there is kind of this prevailing theme, which I mentioned or alluded to earlier. We build places where people want to be. And so you have to kind of take that into consideration depending on the type of project that you're building, whether it's a, a coffee shop or whether it's a select service hotel or whether it's a luxury destination resort. And so I think we've just had to really pull that, you know, just that DNA into our thinking. So I wouldn't say there's a specific, okay, we're only going to do stone. We're going to do wood baseboards boards and these types of things. There's probably a couple of those that come to mind if I were to kind of really think through it. But, but by and large, it really is saying that are we creating a place for someone to want to be? At no matter, you know, wherever they are on that income level. So, how do you create a moment and how do you create a place
0: where guests want to be? And I'd like you to pick a specific project as an example and walk us through what that project looks like and what that process entails. So maybe Mountain Shadows is one that you did that you can just really specifically walk us through. Like, do you just turn this over to a design team and say, hey, you know, figure this out. We have good bones here.
1: All right, let's take my own shows. So I have a partner there, a guy named Scott Lyon. Scott Lyon lives in Phoenix. He's, he's in paradise Valley. He's just an incredible man. He's high integrity. He is just a great character of an individual. And so we have, we had a great relationship and ironically, he was kind of in many ways more of the dreamer. And I was a little bit more of the governor of the golf cart, just like my brother and I kind of our relationship, but When we were looking at the design of this, we were really trying to pay tribute to the original mountain shadows. And that had kind of this half moon, crescent moon type of design that in some ways. And Scott was gracious enough to listen to me that he actually pulled up the email the other day and sent it to me and said, I thought you might find this interesting from whenever it was 10 years ago. And what I mentioned to him, I was like, look, I feel like the mountain, that is obviously our ocean. And so creating a perpendicular format feels like a more appropriate Setup up than it would be where you have a parallel format, the hotel being parallel to the mountain range, because now half your rooms are looking the wrong way. But in a perpendicular format, in many ways, like some ocean resorts that we've seen, now you've got the ability to create these wings that create a visibility, of a view corridor for every guest to be able to appreciate the, those mountains. And so that's a simple change. Uh, actually, it's a fairly complex design change, but, but it's the same amount of keys. It just creates a lot more work in terms of thinking about, okay, well, what happens now in between these quote-unquote horseshoes or corridors or kind of courtyards that we've created? Uh, and that ended up being, creating an opportunity for us to create these really special moments in between those. One is now kind of the main wedding area. One is the pool area. The other was kind of this casual golf kind of putting practice screen type of thing. So that's probably just one example where very rarely do we say, okay, design team, go have at it. Most of the time, we have a very clearly articulated vision for what we want to see that hotel become. And so that is the same with Driscoll and Austin. We get to that hotel and we have a very clear vision for what we think the Driscoll could be. In many ways, it's taking a lot of the lessons that we learned from Kid Goldsbury and what his vision was on Hotel Emma And we're saying, what can we do in Austin that would even come close to that type of execution? And so from that perspective, we're literally going space by space by space from the alley, right, which is a complete afterthought, to the stairwell, (laughs) to where the driscoll grill is to where the front desk is today and how that might be able to create it and transform into a a high-end cocktail experience all of a sudden you're literally thinking through each of these spaces in a way where we want to be able to go to the designer and say this is where our head is this is where our vision is help us kind of realize that now that creates that creates guardrails for them to say okay these are the things that this group which has developed a point of view on the hotel wants to execute, let's help them get there versus us saying, hey, you guys do it. And I think when you do the latter, oftentimes what happens is now that's when bu- budgets get crazy. That's when you know, it, it, you're know you having to spend much more time and kind of pulling in and reining in design, which is not a fun exercise to do. And So that's generally how we've looked at it on, on, on two examples. And on the Driscoll, how did that deal come together? <laughs> Seven years in the making.
0: Because that's, I mean, almost like a never sell asset, right? It's even shocking that it came up for sale. You were talking about it like potentially as a legacy asset, long-term old. How did it come together?
1: Yeah, I'm not actually not kidding. Actually, Mountain Shadows and Driscoll were two examples of that where I think, you know, really just grit at the end of the day is, is one of the more critical parts of our business. But on Driscoll, we originally pursued this asset when our friend Rob and Mike Lowe owned it. And when they owned it, they had an insurance partner, capital partner who wanted to sell. It was just time. They had owned it for a long time and they wanted to sell. There was no real rhyme or reason for it. And so we were competing against Hyatt on the purchase. And we didn't know that, which when you obviously we brought Hyatt to Texas and have done several thousand keys with them. And so that was was not a great scenario when we found out that they were rewarded the deal or awarded the deal. And we were in second place (laughs) and it it created can happen in partnerships. It was like, okay, we we need to figure out how to appropriately resolve this conflict. And there were some provisions and management agreements that were under review at that point, I guess, to put it in a lighter way. And so long story short, it was kind of of the things that I never forgot. And that I said, we will own that asset. Now, the relationship with Hyatt has been one of the best relationships that we've ever had in the business. And so they've done a ton to help Woodbine grow. I think we've done a decent amount to help them grow, but that relationship was still rock solid. And you look past some of those things, and you just say, "Okay, how do we get to a point where where we can you know where we can move on?" And we did that. And so for nearly a decade, <laughs> we did. But but I would make it a point every single chance I got to be able to mention to Mark Markopolousian or anyone else who would listen, James Frankie and, and anyone else saying, "Hey, when you are prepared to sell, we're going to be your buyer." we are a Texas group, right? We're Texas investors. There is no asset. There is no other owner that needs to own that asset except us because we're going to do right by it. And we're going to create something that is totally unique and that is remarkably special. And our argument in many ways was, look, you ought to sell it to us just because no one else is going to overspend like we are. (laughs) And maybe that's why we ended up getting it. But in that process, we were able to negotiate a deal with Hyatt. We were able to acquire that with local Austin partners who are just fantastic, one of which Eddie Margain, I mentioned another Brian Sheffield, just good Texans who say, we're going to make this special. And you now have people who are saying, we don't want to just own it, right? We want to own it and we want to make it, we want to make it spectacular. And that really is the mission. So seven years later, we acquire it and now we're in the design process for the rooms And for the whole hotel, and we're kind of looking, doing the F&B thing, trying to figure out what's the right partner there. So it's that'll be a fun one to kind of see that transform over over many years. So did
0: the opportunity not present itself when you learned that Hyatt was the high bidder the first time around to go to them and say, hey, let's uh, partner up here. Let's do it. I mean, most brands today are shedding assets. It would seem that Hyatt would be happy to take on a partner or potentially do some sort of a structure where you can come in at that time? Was that, was that not available?
1: It really wasn't an option at the time. Hyatt's strategy, which I admire, was let's buy assets that we can then encumber with our management team and that we can then encumber with the brand that we want. They were launching Unbound at the time, or well, they were kind of coming up on that. And so Driscoll was the first opportunity to do that. And so Driscoll became really kind of foundation for that. And I think that was a Ironically, that was a big part of the reason why they were willing to sell the woodbine is because they said, well, these guys understand what that brand's about. What they're going to spend on this hotel is truly going to make the unbound collection. That's going to be the centerpiece of that collection. At least that's the goal. And so from our perspective, I think that was probably part of the reason many years later why Hyatt said these are the right partners, if you will, to have on it.
0: So do you think you got a discount when you bought it from Hyatt because
1: you're going to keep it as an unbound? I mean, I'd like to think so. I think we got a decent number on it, and I think after we bought it, there were other buyers who were willing to pay more so that that does one of two things and one, it limits your optionality, so you probably can't negotiate too too hard when you know you've got a higher bidder behind you and then secondly, I think it it put us in a position where we felt convicted about our business plan that we felt good about where the market was, and Austin, as you probably know, has just continued to perform even in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in the world Uh, we've had a record month just about every month we've owned it and you're an amazing
0: capital raiser one of the things i just find most fascinating about you is you seem to know every single major family office oil and gas hitter in texas and get them to invest in your deals but okay so you're running around telling hyatt you want to buy the hotel but what gave you the conviction to know you can even pull the capital together to actually put the deal on when it came to
1: you? Look, I think that's, well, it's a bit of a side kind of note, I think on the capital side. And I don't, <laughs> you, you, I mean, you were kind to say that. I don't know that we're, we've got it figured out. I just think there's a lot of good relationships who have, who have trusted us enough times where, and we performed where they'll say, okay, we'll, we'll do it again. But it really, you know, not to use the most commonly used cliche but it does come down to trust that's really what it comes down to and i think yeah i've seen this in texas i actually mentioned it earlier in a different context but there is this idea of the transfer of trust and when one family office says about woodbine hey this is a group that you can trust in fact there was one of our partners who was kind of doing just basically doing due diligence on us they called a certain texan famous politician who held very high office and they said, what do you think about, do you know the Scovels? Do you know the, this group? And his quote ne- I thought was just fantastic. He says, those guys are so honest, you can play poker with them over the phone. <laughs> and and I just thought, like, I'll take that any day a week because they, I can run my mouth as much as you want. And until you hear it from a third party who says those guys are who they say they are, that's really the validation that I think other partners need. And so that's what we've been able to build on. And it's not it's not being undefeated either. Right. I mean, they're, they're obviously, this as we mentioned, the past several years have been really tough on the hotel business, but it's proving ourselves in those really difficult circumstances as well. And so when it came to Driscoll or when it comes to Hyatt Hill Country, where we're raising capital for that right now from family offices and, and decided to go away from the institutions, which is again one check and you're done instead we said let's do the, let's do the hard road and go raise you know a 100 million from family offices for one project that's a big raise on something like that we just felt like look we've these are the types of projects that families want to invest in we're, we believe we're the type of sponsor that we will steward it well and that we've got a vision to be able to create some real value for our partners and i think this is not a new concept but when you think about assets to invest in, in this type of market. We can go find, we can go try and raise capital for a bunch of different assets that are being marketed and all this other kind of stuff. But it's really when you have conviction about an asset in your own portfolio, where you're saying, look, nobody knows this asset better than us, period. And we have to be honest about the basis because we're the highest, we're the largest investor in it. And so in that case, it really, I think, creates this just ultimate conviction that, okay, this I'll saddle up with these guys. In fact, we have one investor who's a remarkable guy, was a mentor of mine. He's a West coast guy, owns a massive construction company. And he used to tell me, he's like, Hey, look, I'm in as long as I'm in no deeper water than you are. And he was just like, you know, so you prove it, whatever you're going to invest, as long as I'm less than you, I know I've got less to lose. And so I think I appreciate that perspective. I think we've been able to hopefully build a business where people go, okay, I'm going to, I'll saddle up with Woodvine any day of the week.
0: And when you're talking to these family offices, whether it's raising capital for Hyatt Hill Country, which maybe we'll come back to, or the Driscoll, do you hire someone to get introduced to these people? Is it word of mouth? And then once you get in the door, bringing them a little pitch book, like what does the whole process look like? A lot of people probably have experience with high net worths, but when you're getting into these mega family offices, what does that process look like?
1: You know, there's a saying, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. Like There are no two that are the same. All handle their process very differently. We've just tried to be really thoughtful to say, let's build relationships. And over many years, then, then when it's the right time to be able to approach someone, we can. But we've also found that birds of a feather flock together. So it really is about family office A, saying you need to meet B, C, and D. And then when we do that, Course, that has a multiplication effect. And so we don't hire intermediaries. Those can have their value in their place for sure. But we found it's just a knife fight. You just kind of have to go one by one by one. You get, I mean, I always kind of describe it in capital raising, it's just the ultimate test of perseverance. Right? You can never get tired. You have to love the pitch. You have to love your story. You have to believe it, you know, with, with the most passion possible. And that translates. To people. And so from what I've learned about it, it really is saying, I just kind of say, well, I'll just outlast the next guy. That's what I'll do. I'll just, I'll just outlast them. And we'll just kind of keep telling that story and keep telling Woodbine's story and keep telling Woodbine's story until we build those relationships where people go, okay, we need, we should invest with these guys.
0: So it's grit. And then you have to eventually close, right? So do you have like a special line you use or a special technique? Or do you just wait for them to tell you what they want to invest?
1: No, it's setting dates. It's really putting pressure, though, right? I mean, family offices don't work well with that. I mean, so in many situations, Woodbine will close on the deal beforehand and then we'll bring in that. Do you have a fund that time. you do that with or do you, do you just company capital? How does that work? It kind of depends. If it's a smaller deal, we will use balance sheet. If it's a larger deal, oftentimes we've got a fund we can do that with. But generally, right, when we're backfilling that type of capital, obviously, you got a lot of conviction. You have to have a lot of conviction in the deal to be able to put your own balance sheet at risk to be able to close on that opportunity. So, no, there's no secret sauce. No, spe- I mean, it's just it really is time over target. You know, it's saying, OK, we're going to keep pushing that through. OK, now we're in documents. OK, we're after documents now. You know, and by the way, it's not like you can say it's not like what's one of the crowdfunding thing. It's not like CrowdStreet yeah, or something. OK, we're this is when the deal goes live. This is when you have to close. It's not like that. We're running 40 of those processes at one time that are any variation of stage. And by the way, we're almost never saying, look, we're going to need the capital in a month or else you're not going to get in it. It's just we try never to apply pressure in that regard. It's almost always trying to figure out how you give somebody the option to say, "Okay, on our own time, we're coming in. You just got to be patient with us and we'll get there. And so we've just found a way to, to Extend that and open that and elongate the process long enough to be able to make it work. So, you give the appearance of a deadline, but not really the pressure. For sure. We always give a deadline and saying that our first close is X, our second close is Y, because now you have to have a back end target that you're working against. The reality is that if you get to that target and they still haven't funded, but they're at the doorstep, you got to figure out a way to allow them to come in because that's a relationship that will be there time and again if you do right by them. And so, Oftentimes, once we've closed them in one deal, then it becomes a lot easier for the future deals. But of course, we want to use assets like Hyatt Hill Country right now or Driscoll that we did. Those types, we want to use those as calling cards. Those are a reason why somebody will answer the phone and they'll say, I want to hear about that deal. So that has to become the entree by which we use to get in the door. But we also have to know that these new relationships who have not invested in Woodbine before are going to need a lot of time to vet us. To vet our team, to vet the deal, right? There's just so much to it. And that's where, of course, it really helps to ha- to be able to say, hey, the Hunt family's at X, or the, you know, this family's at Y or this partners at Z. Those are the things where there is a bit of a network effect that ends up impacting our business in a positive way.
0: Hotels is really the foundation of Woodbine. It's in many ways how you started. And I'm curious to know what is it about hotels that you all find interesting? And why do your investors think investing in hospitality is interesting?
1: I mean, yeah, you, you could answer this as well as I could. In, I mean, recruiting investors for hotels are is challenging. I mean, it is an uphill battle because everyone understands the volatility of hotel investing. Whether you've ever invested in a hotel or not is we have a one-day lease, right? An office building has a 10-year lease, like that, that's a very challenging sell. And by the way, there have been almost existential crises in the hotel business several times over the last decade.
0: Great financial crisis, COVID, terrorism.
1: Yes, exactly. So you go, now this is, this is a, it's a really hard business. Of course, where those challenges exist, theoretically, there is more opportunity. There is, and what we found is while it is a smaller, group of people you are competing against, that may be one advantage, but but it is really about leveraging the relationships that we have to be able to go source opportunities that we think our competition would have a harder time executing. And so in many ways, that may be development, right? I mean, there are not a lot of developers developing high-end destination resorts. There are a lot of developers developing select service. And so we try to play in both of those, but really try and figure out, okay, if we're doing select service development, in this case, we partnered with a guy named Dewey Weaver, who has a company called Intermountain Tells and Intermountain Management. That was a critical relationship for us to say, hey, if we're going to go into that business, let's learn it first. Let's learn it from arguably the best in the industry. And now, of course, even though I would argue it doesn't benefit them very much. (laughs) Uh, We end up doing two or three deals a year because that relationship is important to both groups and where it's like, you know what, in that case, one plus one probably does equal three. So it is a really hard road to raise capital on hotels. But it's also one of the things where when you think about an asset like Driscoll, every Texan knows the Driscoll and they're going to they want to stay there and they want to be proud of that. And so we don't ever invest on ego. But if we can create a return out of an investment like that, that has that kind of like cachet and appeal and like emotional attachment, then I mean, now you can do something special. So I think that's how we've tried to approach it.
0: So going back to the Driscoll, you raised some money. I think you got a bank loan, probably right. What what does that capital stack generally look like? Just debt and equity or is there other components to it?
1: No other components. We've never done Mez. We've never done... Well, I say that. I say that. We shouldn't say never. There, there have been situations where we have or had prep or those types of things. But typically, we, we don't have a Mez lender. Typically, we don't have PACE. Typically, we don't have anything like that. It's really about having... Like We've got lender relationships that have been unbelievable to Woodbine, particularly regional lender relationships. Now, we've obviously worked with Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Bank of America, not so great. But Wells Fargo, we've had great history with. In a great partnership with, and many of the other larger banks. But we've found, especially in today's world, a lot of these regional lenders, groups like Interbank, uh, groups like First United Bank, groups like Plains Capital Bank, these are groups where we've just had great relationships, where you know that if something goes wrong, you're basically calling the CEO of the bank and you're saying, hey, we got we got to work through this. And that's hard to do in the larger banks. And so from that point of view, I think, if anything, uh, I would say that probably that might even be more of a competitive advantage for us, the regional lender, than than even our equity partners are. And on a deal like that, are you doing
0: it's probably going to be a longer term hold? Are you doing fixed rate debt? Are you floating it? Is it a three plus one plus one? Like what 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 does the debt look like on a deal like that with maybe a longer hold period?
1: It does range. I mean, um, one of the resorts we did that we knew we'd hold long term, it was basically a five-year base loan and a five with a five-year extension, which is almost the old-school semi-perm type of deal. On Hyatt Hill Country, it's a three-year initial loan term, interest only, within three one-year extensions. Oftentimes, you don't see three. Right now, now we wanted to try and give ourselves flexibility to, to you know, kind of play the rate right market. Any lender is going to make us. I mean, they make us cap it anyway. Uh, there are some fixed rate deals out there that we've got. We've been able to get done. Some of these are prime based loans, but right now, obviously, most lenders are floating. In, but, but in in both of the well, three of the deals that we've done recently, we've been really fortunate. Again, with two regional lenders and one with Wells Fargo to be able to get to be able to, to to get a great deal done when really no one else in the market was doing deals. And so that that really is the power of the relationship and the sponsorship and being able to say, "Hey, Wells Fargo, you know what we're going to do right here." And so that was enough for them to be able to say, OK, we quoted your terms in January. We're going to close in September. Right. By the way, right in the middle of all the Ukraine stuff. Not that that is alleviated, but but when that was really at a fever pitch early on. So that, that's just a, a critical relationship, I think, testimony to say, OK, we can get a deal done when arguably a lot of other folks aren't.
0: And when you do these hotel deals, do you manage the hotels yourself or do you hire third parties?
1: We don't. My dad's philosophy has always been, look, we, you got to be able to fire your manager. I mean, if, if they're not performing well, you need to be able to fire the manager. Now, I could, I could easily argue the other side of that, why it makes sense to manage your own assets, to be able to control your destiny. But we've just always operated in that point of view that, that we're going to. So we have several managers, Davidson, Ambridge, Ergo. Hi at Hilton, Marriott. I mean, you, you, Intermountain. You you go down the list. We, we've got a practice, I and mean, we have several management companies that are managing for us. But we've just always felt like being our own operator is just not a business that we feel equipped to be able to go into.
0: So, on the Driscoll, how do you go about selecting the manager and thinking about that? And clearly, you have such a impactful vision about creating moments in all of these spaces and executing. F&B on a high level, how do you evaluate that? And what what does that structure look like?
1: Well, I'll say this, not just Driscoll, but I think any asset, whether it's West Coast, East Coast, middle of the country, select service, full service, I think you're first trying to understand what is the regional competency of that group. And that's really often, when it's a larger operating company, you really have to dig into, okay, who's my on property team? Who's my regional team? What kind of corporate support am I going to get? And in what way? And so we try to dig deep on that to understand if there's a group that's, hey, they're they're better in the southeast than this group is, and even though they're based not too far away. So there's certain things like that that we'll really take a hard look at because I do think geographic proximity does impact oftentimes how a property is managed. But then there's also also things like, you know, with Hyatt, who manages several thousand keys for us where they are equipped to operate these big hotels in a way that other companies aren't. That's not a fair rule across the board, but but it oftentimes is true that when you're talking about a 500 a 1,000-room hotel, that Marriott and Hyatt and Hilton are uniquely equipped to be able to manage those types of assets and do it well. And that does require a lot of accountability that requires an active asset management team, which I would argue I think we have done really well and, and really built a team that can do that well. but. There's a very nuanced answer for that because it also depends, well, is it independent? Does it have a lot of f and Is it more of an efficient model? Are you really working about cost cutting? Are you really driving revenue? And th- In that case, you're really making choices based on some of those very, almost on the outside, which would seem like minor points, but end up being really impactful for the overall strategy of the asset.
0: And on an asset like the Driscoll, what do you do with food and beverage? Do you give it to the manager? Do you bring in a third party? Do you lease it out? How do you keep the vision so cohesive and then align the food and beverage to that?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the food and beverage piece is a tough one. I think oftentimes most F&B operators think they would be great hoteliers. Most hoteliers think they're great F&B guys. We are neither. We think they're great F&B guys and they're great hotel guys. And so in this case, we just structured a management agreement that will allow us to bring in a third-party operator on the F&B if we think that is the right outcome. And so We'll go out with an RFP and go out to the street and talk to, you know, everybody from Boca to Let Us Entertain You to, you know, uh, McGuire locally in Austin. I mean, in these types, you'll try to figure out a way to bring them into a project and go, hey, this is what we think we can do, but help us understand what what your vision is for that property and how many units we could operate. And that, of course, when you're bringing in the big guns like that, you got to have a lot of square footage that will occupy their time because they need a big, they need a lot of revenue to be able to justify what they're going to do. So generally, as a rule, we have found that today's consumer is savvy enough to know if you're in a hotel restaurant or not. And therefore, we feel like in most occasions, especially when it's a lifestyle deal, bringing in a third-party operator, ideally even a local third-party operator, really can mean the difference in how a customer perceives that asset and that experience.
0: Do you have any tips or strategies that you've found best to structure those deals whether it's a local operator down the street or someone you're bringing in out of town is that like a management fee or do you percentage deal?
1: We've honestly done them all management fee, percentage deal where we've owned the employees and they're really just getting a salary and kind of a, a license deal. We did that with Wolfgang Puck. At Hyatt, we did that, I don't know if you remember, Nina Compton in New Orleans. Uh, She competed on, uh, I think it was like Iron Chef or something like that and met her, her husband, lovely, amazing people, kind of struck up relationship pretty quick and said, hey, how can we make this work for you? And for them, it was really more of a, okay, we'll give them part of the ownership, but by and large, we'll control all the back of the house which was a benefit for them. That's really what they were they were looking for. And then other scenarios where we've done just a true third-party management agreement where we're saying, okay, you're going to come in and operate that. You'll take a percentage of top line. And then others we've said it's a true lease where we're saying, let's identify, what would make on that space. If we were just operating it ourselves, that's the baseline rent that we need to achieve. Everything above that will split. And that's usually ends up being a 50-50 type of deal.
0: I want to move back to some of the development you talked about? Because you mentioned that you were doing some limited service hotels, and that's completely different from these big resorts. Is that because it's not really possible today to build a mega resort? Or is that just a strategy that you wanted to pursue at the time?
1: It's really as much about diversification. It's totally different. But uh, I heard a great saying where somebody said something like, look, you just go to a conference and the select service guys are flying their own planes in. The the full service guys are always taking the airlines. And I'm like, you know what? That's a really interesting observation. <laughs> that I is, feel like
0: we know some people. Yes, like that. right?
1: right? I mean, it's 100% true. And so I think that was as much about saying, look, you cannot ignore that segment. That is a massive segment of our business. And to to get caught up in the artistic side of, hey, I'm only going to do so, uh, full-service hotels or lifestyle or luxury or this, that, and the other, that felt like a short-sighted point of view. And so that's why we felt like getting into the select-service business was a, is an important way for us to diversify, but still do what we know how to do, which is… Which is hospitality. I mean, I think you know. We and
0: were your select service are they a little bit more high end or overbuilt than a typical select service, or are you just doing little boxes like everyone
1: else? <laughs> well, some of them are doing like everybody else. You know, town place suites. There's not much you can do to that. I mean, you can build it in a better location. Ours happens to be on the water in a few places, but but there's not much else to it other than a different color carpet. But, yeah, you know, we have had some success with AC. We helped launch that brand. have done, I think, four of those now. And those have been really successful. And it does. It, it is obviously a much more of a lifestyle feel, a little more thoughtful approach to art and interiors. Uh, but, it, you know, I don't know that our overdeveloping those is really making a massive difference. I think it's just probably some of the questions we were talking about earlier. There is definitely a discernible difference in quality. That I think the customer, the guests, and then eventually capital markets, those that are looking to acquire our asset, seem to appreciate based on the key, the price per key that we are getting on exit.
0: And are you doing these, whether it's limited service deals or some of these larger resorts, for your own fund and your own capital? Or are you doing some of these as third-party developer?
1: You know, we don't do a ton of third-party development work. But where there is a strategic relationship that we feel like we can build. Where we can create some opportunity for for us and them, then we will look at doing the kind of third party fee development work, uh, and that might be some of that's give back, right? Some of that's for the for a university, some of that's you know for a local entity here in town that we've supported for for many years that wants to do a hotel next to their park, or you know, there's things like that that we will we'll dig into just because we feel like that's part of our. Public service announcement, I guess, but there are other scenarios where you know, again, you've got a strategic relationship, and this owner has a hundred tracts of land that we go, okay, what we do right by him here, we're going to have an opportunity down the road.
0: Well, you once gave me some advice, and I think it would be eye-opening for the listeners to kind of get some insight as to what that was. And we were doing some third-party development for a large institution, and the fees were good. It was fun. It was maybe a little glamorous, but you said you got to keep your eyes open and you said it's hard to always please that owner. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about some of your experience in these third party development
1: deals. It is a challenge. I mean, I think, look, when you are an owner and you're not in the service business, it's not easy to just shift into the service business. In fact, I think being an owner, as many people argue, hey, we think like an owner. That's actually a liability why is that a (laughs) liability? Because I think like an owner, then I'm saying, this is the way that I would do it. You don't need to do it this way. That costs too much. That's not enough. You should have changed the room to do this. And meanwhile, that owner whom you are serving says, who is paying for this hotel? Stop telling me how to develop the hotel. I don't care what you think. I just want you to execute. And we found that that's actually hard for us to do. So from that perspective, that's part of why it's rare that I think the Third-party business makes a ton of sense. And so we just try to be really clear and understand the expectations going in. What exactly do you need? What are the roles and responsibilities? How do we fulfill those? Is that fee good enough uh, to justify our time? But more importantly, will it lead to something else? Something that's actually a meaningful project that we can own? Because every minute I spend on a project that I don't own is a minute I'm not spending on something that I do own which in some ways almost feels like a fiduciary responsibility to my existing investors that, that I'm almost abdicating in a way. And that's not totally fair because we still have a business to run and fees are a part of keeping lights on and all those types of things. But you could make the argument where that might be the case.
0: And if for your development deals today that you're doing with your own capital or with capital that you have with a fund, your own fund, a partner, what kind of criteria are you focusing on right now, if anything?
1: In terms of development deals?
0: Development deals.
1: You know, we've just kind of said, okay, we'll make a strategic decision to pick the five or six sites that we already have in control that we know we will put into production eventually. And we're saying we're not going to do anything in terms of going to get loans right now. But what we will do is we'll say we're going to put our balance sheet at risk. We'll spec time and dollars, be able to advance plans to the point where... If and when capital markets do come back, then we haven't wasted six months sitting on our hands. Now, that's an expensive proposition because, you know, a set of plans may cost, you know, a million or two million dollars. But but for us, for those that we were very convicted about, those are the ones that we say we can do it. It, It's worth the time. We know these markets will perform eventually. And so let's go.
0: I want to kind of close. We've talked for almost about an hour now. I want to close with a little bit about some of these new investments that you're doing, because it's not only in hotels. You talk about diversification, you're getting into some office, why?
1: Well, I think, look, you go through something like the pandemic and you go, we cannot possibly rely on hospitality given the some of the volatility that we've seen. I mean, rely exclusively on that. Like, obviously for our investors, 99% of their wealth and balance sheet are not invested in hospitality. There's a, probably a, a very small portion of their balance sheet that is invested in hospitality. And I think it's just prudent on our part to try and figure out, look, we cannot be 100% concentrated in hospitality. We understand real estate. The relationships across the business are generally very similar, if not the same. And so it's really about saying, how do we leverage our expertise to go into other product types where we think we can create value? And oftentimes that, that I think we're, we're gonna learn along the way. Right. I mean, office is a business that we feel like hospitality can have an impact on. Well, shoot, what's happened to office last year? So I think that there's obviously a ton of headwinds on that. Multifamily is a place where where hospitality, I think, can have a massive impact on that
0: industry. In what sort of ways? Office and multifamily?
1: Office, you think about the concierge effect of if you walk into a hotel, for example, you're greeted by a well-suited individual, man or woman. Who has a big smile and greets you by name, arguably, or at least when you check in does and offers you many things that assist your experience along the way. And now if you're there for two or three days, their job is to recognize you. How's your stay? What's going on? Right. In an office building. What typically happens, you walk into a very cold, very voluminous space with two massive modern pieces of art into a silver elevator past a security guard who's got an ill-fitting suit on, who does not look up from his phone, may or may Sounds not like even be there, right? You walk in, you know, doesn't guide you or anything else, and has seen you, has been working there for a year and may not even know your name, and you don't know his or hers because they're temp labor and have been there. That position has changed 25 times. Now, I think you you take that whole preamble I gave on the hotel business. And you say to an office visitor, "Okay." CEO walks in the door. He's greeted by somebody who's got a smile, who they know every day, who before they get the elevator, has punched the button door, has put the key fob on their floor. Good morning, Mr. Worsak. Looking forward to uh, seeing you today. I know it's we're coming up to your wife's birthday. Do you still want to do you want to do what we did last year? We happy to get the team to do flowers if you want to do that again or whatever the case may be. Do you need a ride to lunch? You can jump in the office van and, or vehicle, and we'd be happy to take you. Those are the types of things where you go, hey, that's like easy touches. Doesn't change anything about the way that office building operates, but it's high touch. It's high service. I think, again, like multifamily, you'd say the same thing. Well, why doesn't multifamily have room service? Why doesn't multifamily have concierge? Why doesn't multifamily have a great coffee operator in the in the lobby? Right? You've got a captive audience that, that's larger population than most coffee shops survive off of, especially the kind of local ones. So I think those are the types of things where we feel like a infusion of hospitality and those other types of businesses can be interesting. And I think, look, industrial, I got nothing for you. There's zero chance where hospitality crosses that boundary, at least yet. But we're investing heavily in land that we think we will be able to turn into warehouses. And that's more about, hey, I think we can figure that business out. <laughs> we're going to need some help, but I think we can figure it out. Well, that brings us to an interesting
0: point. So what do you think happens to all these class B suburban offices that are half leased and people are worrying about right now? Do those just become self-storage sites? Do they become a combination of hotel, office, multi with what you were just describing? What happens to that stuff?
1: I think part of the advantage we have is we can't see the forest for the trees on office. And so it makes us bullish on certain assets. Like, for instance, I look at Dallas, and I'm like, I'd buy half the stuff in and around the urban core because I'm like, I'm a believer in Texas. And I think people, as many people are going to, that are not going to go to the office, there's 10 times that number of people in the number of companies that are moving to Texas. So. A very uneducated view. That's how I'd view office in Dallas. But in terms of something nuanced like suburban office, no idea. Couldn't even like begin to comment. I Look, people need office somewhere. And I don't know if those end up going away. It's really more about where the decision makers live. And if that office in that suburban location happens to be close to that decision maker's house, then I would imagine it's going to get full. <laughs> I mean, so how... However, I mean, that, that, by the way, is not going on a ULI panel. That is only here of an uneducated Texans view on the world. I love it. Well,
0: I want to go to your office one day. I need you to build me an office that has a concierge like that, that has some food, that has a cool coffee shop, because we are in desperate need. We have had a fun time today. This has been a great conversation. I ask everyone the same closing question. So I'm going to surprise you, maybe put you back on your feet, but... Tell me your favorite hotel.
1: No, 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 that's fairly easy for me. I'd probably give you a handful, but I think the Hotel Emma in San Antonio is probably my favorite hotel that we've had a chance to be involved with just because there were very few constraints on creating something magnificent. I think my favorite hotel that we own, which is different, would be Mountain Shadows. Just because it was such a great partnership, it was our entire team was involved in it. And it's, it really is kind of has this beautiful, timeless feel that I think will be an asset in a location that will be appreciated for, for I think many, many years to come. Hopefully.
0: I love it. This is fun. I appreciate you. Hey everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple podcast, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at, Jay Wurzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Wurzak is the founder and
1: CEO of Dovehill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dovehill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice.